Father. Your love demands our all. You who did not spare your own son, you gave him up for us. You gave yourself, and then you call us to give ourselves wholly to you. And I pray that we would give ourselves wholly to you tonight in the act of listening, listening to your word, and reflecting again on a story that many of us have heard dozens if not hundreds of times, the story of the cross. I pray that it would not grow overly familiar. When things become familiar, they lose their effect on us sometimes. I pray that the cross would be always fresh in our minds and hearts, even as it is familiar. And I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. This morning, I'd like to take you on a journey through three important passages in the Bible about the crucifixion. Three important passages. Two are in the Old Testament, and the third is in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. And uh, the way Brian and I preach, and I can too, we're always going from the New Testament back to the Old Testament, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We have the Bible's one book. So, as you're following along, okay, my encouragement to you is to be flipping to these three texts. I don't jump all over the Bible. There's three texts. There's John chapter 19, Zechariah chapter 12, and Exodus chapter 12. So first, we're going to turn to John 19. And I'm going to read verses 14 to 19 and verses 28 to 37 uh, with a couple comments as we go along. Things that I, I want you to notice. John 19, verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. So here's the first comment. Notice right from the start, these two words. Preparation and Passover. Day of preparation tells us that this was a Friday. The day the Jews would prepare themselves for the Sabbath. The the Saturday of rest. And this Sabbath would actually be a very special Sabbath. It was during Passover which was a week-long event for the Jewish nation. So the day of preparation of Passover, it doesn't mean that it was the day that they were preparing for the Passover. Jesus has already eaten the Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday, the night he was betrayed. But now it's Friday. And so verse 14, it was about the sixth hour. He, Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now skip down, if you would, to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, in other words, a special Sabbath during the Passover, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. And they would do that so that the the guys on the cross could not push up and get air. That's how you survived on a cross, by pushing up and getting a breath and then going back down. And if you broke your, your legs were broken, you would suffocate. It's truly horrific. And so they wanted them to break the legs. And they came to Jesus, and they saw that he was already dead, in verse 33. So they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. That's John saying, like, I saw this with my own eyes. Believe me, it happened. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's, Exodus, that's from Exodus 12, verse 46, the Passover passage, which we'll look at in a minute. No bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken. Then, verse 37 in John, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And that's from Zechariah 12, verse 10. So I'll summarize what we've seen here so far. Jesus dies on the cross on Passover week. His bones are not broken, showing he's to be understood as a Passover lamb. And the people look on him who they have pierced, and blood and water flow out of his side. So I just want those images to be in your head as we go forward and, well, backwards, back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. This is where Passover has its roots. So I'll just summarize the story for you. In the Exodus story, God's special people, Israel, they're in brutal slavery in Egypt. But God has been commanding Pharaoh, king over all Egypt, to let the people go through the word of his servant Moses. Pharaoh, let my people go. And kids, what does Pharaoh say? No. That's right. No. Who is Yahweh? Buckle up, buddy. You're going to find out. Again and again, Pharaoh refuses the word of God. Just like Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3 in the Bible, Pharaoh disobeys God's words. And each time he refuses to obey the Lord, the land of Egypt falls apart more and more under terrible plagues of judgment sent by God. Plagues that are intended to show Pharaoh that Yahweh is king over all the earth, not Pharaoh or any so-called puny god of Egypt. The point of the plagues is that disobedience to Yahweh's words, it causes creation to come unglued. And there's nothing Pharaoh and his puny host of gods that he and his people worship, nothing they can do about it. So then in Exodus 12, God sends his tenth and final plague on Egypt. It's the destruction of all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians and all their firstborn animals. The firstborns represented the strength of a nation, the nation of Egypt. 
In fact, Pharaoh's firstborn would have actually been viewed as a young god, since Pharaoh himself was considered divine. And so God sends his destroying angels in this plague, and they go throughout the land and they kill the firstborns in Egypt. And wailing fills the night, mourning, mourning from one end of Egypt to the other. And as a result of this plague, Pharaoh finally drives Israel out of his land. And so we see that Egypt is judged, and Israel, the people that God calls his firstborn son in Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23, Israel, God's firstborn, is saved from her slavery. And yet, as we read this story, it would be wrong for us to think of Egypt as the bad guys and Israel as the good guys. Our minds tend to do that. Oh, those are the bad guys, those are the good guys. I'm the good guy, everybody else is the bad guy, right? We ally ourselves with the good guys, unless we want to be big and bad. But the, the point is, we tend to think in these categories, but the Bible doesn't. Israel was not a sinless nation. They were worshiping other gods, just like the Egyptians. Keep reading the story, you'll find out all about their, their love affairs with foreign gods. If God is going to come down in judgment upon Egypt's firstborns, we really got to ask, how is a just God going to punish Israel, uh, Egypt for their sin and not Israel for their rebellion against God's words? Is God just playing favorites here? How is that even fair to judge Egypt but not Israel? who goes on and does many of the same sins. And so the question we should be asking in this story is how can Israel be saved from the judgment she deserves and yet God still be a just judge? And the answer is found in Exodus chapter 12. The answer is sacrifice. Israel will only make it safely through the coming judgment by placing their faith in the sacrifice of a spotless lamb. Let's read now Exodus 12. 3 to 13. And again, I'll make a few comments as we go along. Exodus 12, 3 to 13. God says to Moses and Aaron, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their dearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from among the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. This was to be done carefully because Exodus 12 verse 46 says, Don't break any of the bones. We're not going to read there, but again, they're to slaughter them without breaking bones. Verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood... And put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Now, another pause. If you look down at Exodus 12.22, we see that they were supposed to paint this blood on the doorpost using a cluster of herbs called hyssop. And the leaves of hyssop were commonly used back then for purification and cleansing. In Psalm 51, I think the psalmist says, cleanse me with hyssop and then I will be clean. It's a, it's a cleansing image. And it's highly symbolic here. This blood that's going on the doorpost, it's purifying the contents of the house in some way. The people who are inside eating the lamb. The lamb is purifying the house. Verse 8. 
That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If there is some left till morning, you must burn it. In other words, this is a one-and-done meal, just like the sacrifice made is a one-and-done sacrifice. Verse 11, this is how you're to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So eat it in go mode, because you're about to go out of Egypt. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So for some of you, for many of you, this is probably a very familiar story. Um, What I would like to do now is just walk through it and point out three things about these verses that I think are really important for understanding what's going on. First, the Hebrew word that you hear translated here as Passover, that's, kinda, that's actually like an English word, Passover, for a Hebrew word that we really, it doesn't show up often, and we really only know what it means in context in this passage. In other words, we see the word Pasach in Hebrew, and we really aren't totally sure what it means in and of itself. But as Christians have read the story over the years and tried to understand what's going on, we've said, well, God comes in judgment and he sees the blood and it's like he he passes over the, the Israelites' homes, but not the Egyptians' homes. But more recently, there's actually been some good cases made for a retranslation of this word to mean something more like cover over, like a bird Pasax covers over her young and protects them with her wings as the fire burns around them. Or more broadly, just, just this idea of cover over or protect. Protection. In other words, every time you read the word Passover, you can say or think in your head, protection. God himself is protecting the people from his own judgment. Come back to that in a second. This leads to the second thing about Passover or the protection event. In the story, there is a destroyer who carries out the actual judgment on behalf of Yahweh. While it is Yahweh who literally protects, Pesach protects Israel. In other words, although these verses clearly tell us God's the one bringing the judgment and striking the firstborn, he does his striking through an agent or agents of death called the destroyer look at chapter 12 verse 23 when the lord goes through the land to strike down the egyptians he will see the blood on the top of the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down so the destroyer is carrying out the lord's judgment the author of psalm 78 he understands the passage this way He says in Psalm 78, verse 49, that God destroyed Egypt through the agency of a band of angels. He sees the destroyer as more than one. This, if you remember, is how the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, those evil cities of Genesis 19, with angels 
destroyers. And this is how he will judge the world in the future, according to Jesus. Jesus will come in Matthew 6, verse 27, 16, verse 27, with his angels and judge the world. This leads to the third thing to see. Yahweh protects his people from the destroyer, these destroying angels, bringing God's judgment. He protects them. He himself protects them through the death of a lamb. As the judgment that Yahweh has decreed falls, and as the destroying band of angels are moving through this land, striking down Egypt's firstborns, Yahweh himself stands in the way of his own judgment, and he covers over, he protects every house that has the blood, like a mother hen, protecting her chicks, hovering under her, huddling under her while fire burns around. That is the image that we should have here. If the blood covered your door, then Yahweh himself would cover your house. It's as if Yahweh identifies with the lamb's blood. Why would he do this? Circle around to this at the end again. But I'll show all my cards right here. It's because one day, Yahweh's firstborn son, himself Yahweh, would actually come to earth as a human lamb and die to save all who trust his blood from his own he comes to save us from his own eternal judgment that little lamb so long ago it couldn't cover over the people's sin but faith in the lamb was ultimately faith in Yahweh who identified himself with the lamb that he would save through that lamb. And one day, the real lamb of God came. As John the Baptist cried out in the beginning of this gospel, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At the cross, Jesus Christ dies as a Passover lamb. He paid the price for the sins of everyone who trusts in Yahweh to save them from judgment, both then and now and forever. So Christ, our Passover lamb, as the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He is, the down, he is the payment for our redemption, our rescue. He is the way we can be saved as judgment falls on this evil world. That was God's plan all along. And we don't just see this in Exodus 12. It was also prophesied through the prophet Zechariah. John quotes Zechariah in chapter 19, verse 37 of the Gospel of John, which we read earlier. And so what I'd like to do next is just read some sections from Zechariah. Zechariah, I was talking to Michael Gray earlier, Zechariah is one of the most complex books of the Old Testament, I think right up there with Daniel and Revelation in the New. Um, Zechariah is tough sledding, but it is glorious as well. And there is so much of Jesus in it. And so Zechariah chapter 12, I'm going to unpack for us briefly where it connects to Exodus 12 and then to the cross. So first, though, I think it's helpful to know about Zechariah, that Zechariah is writing to a group of Israelites who have recently returned back to Jerusalem from their long stay in exile outside of the promised land. They thought their exile was over. We're going back to the land. But then back in the land, they're still surrounded by enemies. And even though they're technically not in exile anymore, the exile still feels like it's going on because they're really slaves still in their own land, surrounded by people who want them dead. And what's more, they've got major, major sin problems. They need a new exodus, an exodus out of slavery from their enemies, ultimately the greatest enemy being sin. So Zechariah 12, 1 to 13, verse 1. 
the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So there's an oracle, a message for the people. And in verses 2 to 9, I'll just summarize this message. God's going to deliver Israel from their enemies by giving them victory over their enemies and by making them invincible, basically. This deliverance is actually described in language that should make a careful reader who's very familiar with the Exodus story, which an Israelite would have been because this is like their salvation, a careful reader will notice that Zechariah is pulling some imagery from the Exodus here. Verse 4, God says he will strike every horse of their enemies with panic and its rider with madness. That's what God did to the Egyptians when they chased the Israelites into the Red Sea. In verse 8, he says that on that day, this is a future day of new Exodus-like salvation, on that day the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. That's another allusion to the Exodus event. When in Exodus 14, verse 19, the angel of the Lord went before the people, leading them across the Red Sea in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. So here, who's leading them? A future Davidic king will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them, leading a new exodus. You've got a Davidic God who's king leading a new exodus for the people of God, for deliverance from their enemies. And in this new exodus, we suddenly read something very startling in verse 10. God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Then, verses 11 to 13, they talk about how terrible this morning is going to be. And verse 1 of chapter 13 says this, On that day, this future day, when Yahweh is pierced, and when there's great mourning, there will be a fountain opened for the houses of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So again, I'll summarize what we've seen. On that day, some future day of salvation, Zechariah says that God will deliver his people from their enemies, just like the Exodus, in a new Exodus. And this new Exodus is going to be led by the house of David, who's going to be like God somehow. And just like in the first Exodus, a firstborn son will die. Verse 10, did you catch that? They'll be mourning the piercing of Yahweh like you would mourn for a firstborn. Where did the, the one place in the Bible where there was mourning like never before over a firstborn? The Exodus. The people of Israel will mourn and weep bitterly. So a firstborn has died and the people are weeping. Who are they weeping over? They're weeping over the one they pierced. Who is the one they pierced? It's Yahweh. And it's the God who's speaking in verse 12. The look on me. That's a shocker. It should be anyway. Israel has pierced their God. Ultimately, though, that's what all sin aims at. The death of God. Sin, even the littlest sin, wants to say no to God. I wish you hadn't made that rule. I wish your word was gone. I wish you were out of my life. Sin aims at the death of God. So here we see Yahweh pierced 
for his people's sin. And the greatest sin imaginable is the sin we see here. Yahweh pierced by his own people. And yet if we've been tracking with the Exodus story, that shouldn't be a surprise. Remember that Yahweh identified with the lamb in Exodus 12, protecting the people from his own judgment against their sin? Here we see once again Yahweh identifies himself with the lamb, except this time he becomes the lamb. He becomes the firstborn lamb of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not just of Israel, but of all people. On the cross, God himself and the person of his son Jesus, Jesus, who is the son of David, he's pierced like a firstborn son. And indeed, at the cross, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, as we read in Isaiah earlier. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53 goes on to say, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, a Passover lamb, dying for the sins of the people. And so the disciples and his followers weep and mourn for him, not knowing that he would rise. Doors locked, in secret, trembling. They weep and they mourn. And then if you still have Zechariah open, you can look down again at verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. So when Yahweh is pierced and God's people are delivered from their enemies, on that day there will be a fountain opened. A fountain for cleansing that the hyssop and the blood of the Exodus only pointed towards. And I think that this is the reality that John, the writer of the Gospel of John, he's trying to draw our attention to this reality when he says that out of the pierced one flows blood and water. Blood and water for the forgiveness of sins. Just like in Zechariah, the piercing of Yahweh leads to a fountain that cleanses from sin. It's the same in John. On the cross, Jesus is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our sins. On the cross, the words of the prophets come to pass that a fountain will be opened. And you and I, we can be cleansed from our sin. And on that day, also, in verse 10 of Zechariah 12, a spirit of grace is poured out. We, friends, have received the spirit of grace Zechariah spoke of so long ago, if we trust in Jesus. If you go down in John, John chapter 20, verse 20, just a few verses down, what does Jesus do as soon as he rises from the dead and meets his disciples? He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. The spirit of grace is poured out on the people after the piercing of Yahweh, and they plead for mercy and forgiveness, and they find it in verse 1 of Zechariah 13. A cleansing flow washes their sins away. I want us to conclude just by feeling the significance together of Jesus' death for our life and for the lives of everyone that we meet. Sin is serious. You might not feel like your sin is serious when you disobey your creator, but it is a big deal. Ultimately, when we break the words that give us life, we are rejecting life. And that's why the deeper that 
any of us goes into sin, any sin, Briar and I were just talking about this yesterday, a couple days ago, the deeper you go into any sin, the closer we come to death. Anger grows and grows and turns to murder. Lust grows darker and more twisted. It's never satisfied until we've utterly destroyed our ability to delight in or even see true beauty. The world turns dark and cold and becomes dead to us. We're alone. Pride takes you further and higher in your own mind and in your own estimation of yourself and thus further and further from others and from God until lonely and cut off from all other life you experience a form of death-like misery. Gluttony is an easy one. Give yourself to the unrestrained eating of food for comfort or security or whatever it is and your life will end early. We could go on and on. But the point is simply that breaking God's word, it brings death. And ultimately, the separation of our body from physical life, it's only a picture of the even more tragic separation of soul and body from the God who gave us life. The wages of sin is death, both physical and spiritual. And in sinning, we choose death. We might not feel like we're choosing death when we see sin, see disobedience as attractive. But in the end, that is ultimately where that path leads. But on the cross, God takes the wages of our sin, our death. He takes it for us. This is the gospel that we preach, that we want never to lose sight of. Jesus dies in our place as an offering for our sins, as a Passover lamb. And not only so, but Jesus' blood cleanses us from sin. So not only does he take our punishment, he purifies our hearts. The ramifications of this are endless. You don't need to be afraid of God if you trust in Jesus. He's for you. He's not against you. Jesus died in your place for your sins. He paid the debt. You don't have to run the rat race of always trying to be better and earn acceptance. He loves you through Christ. And you don't need to be afraid of what other people think about you either. God knows more than anyone. He knows the worst. And yet he still offers you forgiveness and cleansing Through Jesus, if God is for you, who can be against you? It is God who justifies, says Paul. Who is he that condemns? And so I want to plead with you tonight. If you have not already come to Zechariah's cleansing fountain in chapter 13, verse 1, then I I plead with you, come to the fountain confessing your sin, and put your faith in the king who was pierced for your sins, who was crushed for every impulse in your heart to disobey the God who gave you life. His arms are open wide at the cross. We sang a a song um, at a service I was at earlier today called Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And it In the song, it describes this empty grave and this huge empty tomb. And it says, there between the grave and me, there between us, stood the cross, two arms outstretched to save. 
Jesus stands between us and the death that we've chosen. He says, I've taken it for you. Turn to me and believe all the ends of the earth. So if you have not made that choice to put your trust in Jesus, I encourage you, do it tonight. Do not wait. Do not linger. You do not know when death will come. None of us do. And if you have, never lose sight of the joy of knowing we are forgiven. We are free. Jesus has led a new exodus. We are not slaves to sin anymore. He has rescued us from darkness and he has cleansed our hearts, poured out his spirit in us. And one day, we're talking a lot about this Sunday, but one day he will bring the fullness of his new creation to this earth and it will be amazing. I cannot wait. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your cross. And I ask that you would help us to make the cross central to our day and to our lives. May we never forget your love for us. And I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would turn from their sins in faith to Christ for forgiveness and freedom and cleansing and eternal hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.